Bible. So uh, we're in Ephesians 5.15 today, if you'd like to turn there, but I'd like to start with a question. Who is in charge of your life? Who calls the shots? Who tells you when to wake up and when to go to bed and what to eat and where to work and who to marry and what schools to attend? Who decides for you that balance of the pie chart of your life, of work and education and family and entertainment and rest and hobbies? Who makes that pie chart? Who tells you whether to work hard or play hard or some combination therein? Who tells you when to do something dangerous or when to do something safe? Who tells you when to pursue after righteousness or after sin? Is it your friends? Is it some cultural expectation of this society? Is it the government? Is it your parents? Is it some book that you read somewhere? Is it your choice of media personalities or social influencers? Who calls the shots in your life? Who's in charge? I've been watching this uh, TV series on uh, Disney+. Plus. It's, it's a Marvel show called Loki. Anybody been watching that? Go ahead, out yourself right now. Okay. All right. I don't think it's as good as WandaVision, but I think it's better than Captain Falcon and the Winter Soldier or whatever that was called. Uh, somewhere in between those two. Okay. Captain Falcon. Is that it? No. Okay. That's a video game character. Falcon Punch. Okay. So, <clears throat> it's too much Super Smash Brothers back in the day. Um, so, the premise of the show is that there are... Uh, these all-powerful, this is wild now, there's these all-powerful lizard-like creatures that guard the sacred timeline, and they're making sure that our timeline stays on track, and, and the whole show is about getting off track and getting back on track, and these guardians are in there in this smoke-filled room, and so uh, I'll just spoil it for you real quick. So uh, Loki gets in there, and uh, he gets into the room with them, and he throws a uh, a blade and chops their head clean off right there in the room, and what happens Sparks fly, and smoke comes out, and we find out they were robots. They weren't real. There are no lizard timekeeper guardians. It was just a smoke screen. Now, if this doesn't make any sense to you, let's just use another example. The Wizard of Oz, back when Toto pulled the curtain back, and you realize there was no great and powerful Oz. It was just some guy named Frank behind the curtain pulling levers and, you know, with a microphone. And so the question that you're supposed to have as a follow-up, well, if you're not in charge, then who's really in charge? That's supposed to be kind of the, the, the point of the show so far. I think that we are increasingly believing in our culture today that life is something that sort of just happens to us, or it's something that someone somewhere just tells us how to do and live, that it's sort of just brought down to us from someone uh, rather than something we actively live out. Increasingly, we see people either seeking approval of the culture or seeking the approval of no one and just wasting their lives in purposeless laziness. But for a Christian, the call of Scripture is clear that Jesus actually is in charge of our lives. That's the definition of Lord, in case you didn't know what that means. When we say Jesus is our Savior and our Lord, uh, it's important that both of those are there. The Spirit of God should be ordering our lives. And so we live in a day right now where foolishness abounds. There's no shortage of foolishness in our world. And time continues to be and always has been 
the most valuable of all resources. And so the call that you're going to see from today's scripture will be this. Christians are to live purposeful lives that are spirit-controlled. That's the nutshell of the whole thing right there. If you let someone other than Jesus control your life, you run the risk of wasting it. And so today, we will study Paul's command to walk wisely for the glory of God. Pray with me before we read. Heavenly Father, would you meet with us today? Lord, would you join us and illuminate this word for us? I pray, God, that you would mark out somebody in this congregation, that you would call out to them by your word when it's proclaimed, that you would penetrate their heart, and Lord, that you would bring change where it is needed in us. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking at Ephesians 5, 15 through 21 today. I'd invite you to go ahead, turn there. Uh, As you do, let me give you a refresher on our context. We did take a week off last week, so Paul has spent the last two chapters detailing how a Christian ought to walk in this world. Remember I told you, start circling those words, walk. They're everywhere. And he said it in several ways. Walk worthy of your calling. He said, walk not as Gentiles. He said, walk in the love of Christ. He said, walk in the light of Christ. And that's where we left off last week, finishing up that light theme. Take no part in darkness. Expose your sin to the light of Christ. Walk in holiness. Seek righteousness. Awake, O sleeper, and the light of Christ will shine on you. Boom. And that's where we finished last week. So we're definitely picking up exactly in that theme and moving forward. Look at Ephesians 5, 15 with me now. Paul says, look carefully then how you walk. There's another walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So, if you primarily read from the ESV or NASB like I do, verse 15 is going to read just like that. That's what I read for you. When it says, what do you walk in? The answer is wisdom. Now, if you are a King Jameser or a new King Jameser, it's going to say something like, walk carefully or walk circumspectly. Anybody got a circumspectly in their Bible? All right, there we go. So uh, that's a really cool word. I love the way that 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 sounds. But the good news is there's no uh, disagreement there. To walk in wisdom and to walk carefully or circumspectly is the same exact thing. So no matter what translation you have there, the truth is the same, that we are to walk carefully and wisely in this world. Paul sets up this new paragraph by saying to the Christian, Walk carefully, do so in wisdom, not, and there's always contrast, isn't there always a contrast in Ephesians? Not like the fool would walk. Now remember, when Paul says walk, what does he mean? Does he mean like on the treadmill? Is that what we're talking about? No, this is how he describes the life that you live. The way you live your life is your walk, okay? It's important to know that because you'll think I'm preaching a whole message on power walking or treadmill times or anything like that, okay? No, he's saying, Christians... Life is a minefield with landmines buried everywhere. So don't go skipping around singing tra-la-la-la-la in the minefields of life with no concerns about how you live because life has more meaning and consequence than drifting through like a feather in the wind. To walk carefully, as verse 15 says, means accurately. That's what that word means. It means diligently, exactly, with precision, My seminary president, Dr. Gray, used to illustrate this. I remember it clear as day. He would paint this picture of a woman 
walking in a beautiful, long, flowing white dress through a field outside where there was dirt and mud and puddles all over. And he would build up the story, and at the end he would say, now how do you think she would walk? And the answer was always, very carefully. Our lives are to be lived very carefully, with thought, with precision. There is a God who cares. That's an important presupposition of the Christian faith. There is a God who exists and cares. And we have a Savior whom we aim to please. We have a Spirit dwelling in us. We have a task and a purpose in the Great Commission. Therefore, the Christian life must be lived, I love this word, with great intentionality. Brother Jose, that's in the, in the book, isn't it? The walking in faith intentionally. So, I want to offer you three ways to walk carefully in this world. That's what we're going to look at today. That's our outline. Three ways to do that, which are going to assist you in your wise walk. Number one, you need to let divine purpose drive you. You need to be driven in your life, not by generic ambition, but by divine purpose. Look back at verse 15, that initial command. Look carefully how you walk so you won't live unwisely. We see verse 16 gives the first thing you want to do. Okay, I want to do that. I want to to walk wisely, God. What's next? Paul says it. Making the best use of the what? What does it say? Time. Because the days are evil. Do you know what the most precious of all resources is in life? You know, it's not oil, it's not diamonds, it's not toilet paper during COVID, it's not for some reason milk and bread and eggs before some storm rolls through town, like that's going to get you by. It's time. Time is the most valuable resource that money cannot buy. It cannot be hoarded. It cannot be bought up by the rich. It cannot be stolen from the poor. It cannot be given away as a gift. The clock is what it is. The calendar is what it is. And the earth just keeps on rotating. The linear movement of history that we call time was started by God in the beginning, and it's not going to stop until he says so. You don't hear many people on their deathbed wish for more money. You do hear a lot of people wish for more time. Everything in life has a clock on it. Sometimes you can see the clock. If you have young children, there's a clock ticking. When someday they will grow up, they will leave the nest, and your outsized influence upon their life will be fading away your ability to teach them values, your ability to cement the gospel in their heart, how to search for a spouse, how to live and do everything. There is a time limited to about 18 years. And you can watch that clock expire every single day. It goes down and down, tick, 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 tick. The clay is soft when they're young, but when they get older, that Play-Doh gets a little bit harder every day. That's a time clock you watch expire. Our lives are a time clock that you don't know when it's going to expire. Now, sure, there's an average age of, I forget what it is now, 72. It's somewhere in the 70s. But that's just an average. You only get one life. For the record, there's no such thing as reincarnation. 
just in case you didn't know that. Uh, you only get one life. And can you imagine if each of us lived, if you could push a button right now, and all of us had the time clock of our life above our, floating above our head, ticking downward to our moment of death, would you push that button? Would you want to know? Would you want to see it for the others around you? How would you live your life differently if that button could be pushed? What would you change? In life, you get one swing at bat, one chance to live, and then it's eternity. Christian, you get one life to serve Jesus this side of eternity. The window of repentance and grace is open in this world. As many as will believe on Jesus may come right now. But once we experience death or Jesus returns, whichever is first, the window is closed. Have you ever thought about this? Our doctrine that we love dearly, salvation by grace through faith in Christ, has an expiration time on it. There will come a time when no more new people will be saved. No new salvations will come. There will just be saved and unsaved, heaven and hell, sheep and goats, wheat and tares. Paul says, you want to live wisely? Redeem the time. We live in evil days, Paul says, so make your life count. He doesn't say, waste your time. He doesn't say, just try not to mess things up. He doesn't say, make good use of the time. What does it say? Read it. What does it say? Make the best use of the time. There's a lot of good things that can be done in life, can't there? A lot of good things. Did you know there was a time in my life, in my junior year of college, this is when I was dealing, sophomore and junior year of college was when I was dealing with my call to ministry. I was doing a business degree, and I thought, I was on, I was on the fence, honestly, at that time. And I thought, okay, there's two directions here. Both of them are okay, all right? One of them is that I would like to spend my life, if I could have a dream job, I would like to spend my life in the marketing department of Taylor Guitars. That's what that is right there, by the way. I still play one. To spend my days marketing, promoting, getting Taylor Guitars into more people's hands, that was, that was one thing that I would have loved to have done. The other option was to do exactly what I'm doing right now. You know what helped me make that decision when I was 21 years old, 20, 21 years old? I asked God questions that sounded a lot like this. God, where will you use me to do the most damage for the kingdom of God? Where will the unique combinations of who I am, who you made me to be, be the most effective use of what you've given me? And I'll just tell you, if I thought that I could have done the most damage and have been the best use of my time to be a Jesus-sharing, tailored guitar marketing department guru, I would have done that, okay? I would have. Not everyone is called to be a pastor, and I know that. Not everyone is called to cross cultural boundaries to the mission field and do that. But I knew the best use of my time for God was making his word come alive to his church and seeing people made alive and mobilized to engage the kingdom like never before.
And that's what God called me to do. So think about this. How are you using your one life for God? Are you spinning your wheels? Are you plugged into the social media matrix all day long? Are you sleeping and napping and snacking your days away? Are you using the resources that God gave you to make a dent in the lostness of this world? Have you made an impact of any kind for Christ in this world, whether through praying, giving, or going? How about this? Does your church even know that you exist? Have you told your kids about Jesus and prepared them for the onslaught that is coming for their faith? Does Satan know your name? Is he bothered by you at all? I think of a classic poem written by C.T. Studd, a missionary to China and Africa, who summed up an outlook on life, and I'm going to read a selection from it in this poem. He said, Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say, t'was worth it all. Only one life, t'will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Who is the fool? The fool is the one who fritters their life away on trivial things when eternity hangs in the balance and billions of souls have been commissioned by Jesus to go and get them. The fool is the one who lets the world call the shots in their life while ignoring the clear marching orders of Jesus. The fool is the one who shames the Christian for having purpose and goals in life and caring about something that's going to outlast them while they waste away their time staring at a screen. Live with urgency, church. Live intentionally and on purpose. Let the divine purpose of God drive you. You know, a lifetime is made up of years, but years are made up of months. And months are made up of weeks, and weeks are made up of days, and days are made up of little moments. And every moment is a decision that you make. Your life is just the collection of the little decisions that you make every day which accumulate and snowball into a thing we call life. Don't let it just happen to you, Christian. Don't let life just happen to you. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Live with divine purpose. That's number one. We could go home now, right? We could feel it. You can feel it in the room, can't you? That's number one. If you want to walk carefully and live wisely in the world, you have divine purpose. Number two, you let the Spirit control you. You let the Spirit control you. Now, it's supposed to be said like that. Let the Spirit control you, not anything else. Okay. Verse 18, Paul adds another encouragement which develops into this concept of walking wisely in the world. He says, and, so we're building, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but... Be filled with the Spirit. Now, I hope you see the logical flow from the previous verses. Not a, it's not a random statement. Paul did, just didn't get angry about alcohol for no reason, okay? In his mind, drunkenness was a perfect illustration 
of wasting your life and squandering your time. When Paul, now I'll get an amen one of these days, all right? This is a Baptist church now. Okay. When Paul needed a concrete example of living unwisely, without care, wasting time, he used alcohol. Being under the influence of alcohol was a perfect example because it's the exact opposite of what the Christian life is supposed to picture. Christians are to be sober-minded, right? We're supposed to watch for the roaring lion who's prowling about, that's Satan, seeking to devour you. You don't want to be drunk when the roaring lion comes to your door. Alcohol makes you less sober, less able to fend off temptations in your life. Christians are to speak words of encouragement to one another, to build up, to avoid foolish talk. We talked about this two Sundays ago. Foolish talk, filthy talk. Alcohol makes you say things you wish you never said. Some people are silly drunks. Some people are sexual drunks. Some people are angry, mean drunks. But rarely are we more attuned to the will of God when drunk, which is why the Bible routinely cautions the use of alcohol. The negatives have potential to gravely outweigh the positive. Alcohol was a problem in Paul's day. It's a problem in our day. It takes you over. It fills you with this influence. And that's the companion piece, the comparison that Paul was using. In the same effect, here it is. Here's the whole thing. This isn't really a message on alcohol. Here's here's the turn point, all right? In the same effect that alcohol can have on you, that it's it's a controlling influence in your life, how much more should we be controlled by the influence of the Holy Spirit? Now, this doesn't mean, I gotta say this because people get weird. This doesn't mean that our being filled with the Spirit is to resemble drunkenness, okay? So don't, don't roll around and, and uh, you know, act goofy and say, I'm full of the Spirit. I'll say, I don't think you are. So the point is that wine controls your behavior negatively, but the Spirit controls your behavior positively. That's the whole thing. That's, that's all it is, all right? In fact, Paul, interestingly enough, commands you to be filled with the Spirit. In this verse. You can look at it if you don't believe me. That verse, be filled, you can get your Greek out. Test me. He says, plero, that's the Greek, the Greek word. It is a present passive imperative verb. That's not very common. You know why? If something is imperative, what does that mean? It's a command. Hey, you, stop it. That's imperative, right? If something is passive, what does that mean? It happens to you, right? That's passive. So Paul is commanding that something happen to you. That's hard to do. See why that's strange? You can't fill yourself up with the Spirit the same way you can fill yourself up with alcohol, and yet Paul commands, be filled. In fact, the Greek says, be being filled. Huh. So, it might be interesting for you to know, this is a different verb than, than most all the rest of the book of Acts, when it says that Peter was full of the Holy Spirit, and he stood up, and he preached uh, to Pentecost, this is not that verb. That's pimplami. Sounds Italian. Plero has connotations of being filled with the same way. Listen to this. The word we're talking about has the connotations of being filled in the same way that a hand fills a glove. When a hand fills a glove, the glove is full, yes, but it's also controlled by the influence of the hand. Whatever your hand wants to do, the glove does because it's filled with the hand, right? This is what Paul means when he says, be filled with the Spirit. See, we get goofy sometimes. 
We make being filled with the Spirit this nebulous force. And what on earth does it mean? It means put your hand in the glove and watch it go. That's what it means. You're so full of the Spirit that you do the thing the Spirit wants you to do. You're under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That's what being filled with the Spirit means. How does a person become filled with the Spirit since he commands it? Well, let's look to our metaphor. How does a person become drunk? Y'all aren't supposed to know that one, by the way. They pour, you pour alcohol in there, right? You put gas in the car, you put alcohol in there. How does a person become filled with the Spirit? You pour spirit things in there, right? You put the Spirit in there. This is the value of renewing the mind. If you spend your time putting alcohol into your system, you'll be drunk. That's not a mystery. Why is it a mystery to say if you put wholesome, godly, moral, holy, worshipful, beautiful, Christ-exalting, God-glorifying things into your system, you'll be full of the Spirit. That's how this works. Paul says in Philippians 4.8, love this verse, have it on speed dial. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Don't spend all week pumping junk into your mind and wonder why you don't have the Spirit's influence in your life. We can both, listen, we can both grieve and quench the work of the Holy Spirit by our actions. Okay? Let the Spirit control you. So, if you don't feel that you're truly living under the controlling influence of the Spirit, it's probably a helpful exercise to ask, okay, then who or what is controlling me? Right? That's a good, that's a smart exercise. If you're not controlled by the Spirit in your life, if you, in an honest moment of clarity, you say, I'm not controlled by the Spirit. Okay, what is controlling you then? Where are you getting the way you live and the things you do and what you think and how you act? Where does that come from? Is it the lizards in the room with the smoke head when they get cut off? What is it? Who is it? Is it the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain? Who's calling the shots in your life if it's not the Spirit of God? That's a really good question to ask. The Spirit of God is to be in absolute control and under influence of the Christian. We are to be under the influence of Christ, not alcohol, not anything. So walking carefully in the world with wisdom requires that you let divine purpose drive you. That's number one. You let the Spirit control you. That's number two. And thirdly, that you let praise define you. You let praise define you. Verse 19 is where we're going to look now. We're just moving to the next verse. It's directly following the command to be filled with the Spirit. So that means what we're going to read is a function of being filled with the Spirit. Read it with me. Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reference for Christ. When a Christian is full of the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, what comes out tells us songs of praise, gratitude, and submission to one another. When you squeeze the grape 
that's what comes out. When the Spirit is controlling you, this verse says that you're going to be known as a person who praises God. Are you known as a person that praises God in your life? Now, we often think, I think, in our lives, I think the response to that is, what does that matter? I praise God privately. We often think of singing that we do, and we even have the phrase, audience of one. Just this little private moment between me and God. You close your eyes, I close my eyes. We're locked in the moment. You're in your praise bubble, I'm in my praise bubble. We're all in our little praise bubbles. It's all over the congregation. Bubbles everywhere. But, is that what this says? It's not. It says, addressing one another. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What does that mean? Well, it means two things, really. First, it means that out in your life, outside this worship gathering, you and your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ should have speech that is laced with and infused with at least these three things. All right? I'm going to tell you what they are. Psalms. You know what a psalm is? It's the 150 in the middle of your Bible. All right? No tricks there. Don't have to have a, a degree to know that one. They're, they're great little bite-sized worship nuggets to share. You know, psalms fit a variety of occasions. You should really get to know those things. By the way, we study them on Wednesday nights. Plug, shameless plug. Um, hymns at this, at this time when they were written here probably uh, are more what we would consider poems today, although they were, were definitely put to tunes in time. You know, when hymns were originally written, they were like hymns and tunes were uh, circulating apart from one another. A lot. That's why a lot of hymns um, have the same words but two different tunes because they weren't always written together. They were poems that someone wrote first and then someone came along and put some music to it later. That was a fun fact. So uh, hymns, as defined here, were composed as teaching tools to memorize theology. That's what a hymn is. Uh, it's why there's a distinction today between hymns and praise songs. It's not just time. That The difference between a hymn and a praise song is not just one was written in the 1800s and one was written in 2013. That's not the difference. Uh, it's the structure of the song, the, the, the prose, the way that it's written. Hymns are more like a poem intended to memorize and teach something. Spiritual songs are, uh, it's a generic term for any song created to praise God. So it's just a, a song of praise that doesn't have to have those goals of teaching and memorizing. It's just a praise song. And those are good. Those are good. We sing both of those. Um, Paul is saying, out in your daily lives, when you're out and about, when you're, when you're with your Christian brothers and sisters, share truth with one another. Don't be afraid to do so. Don't be afraid to quote psalms back and forth to one another. Uh, share poems, Christian thoughts and poems. Uh, sing to one another. Maybe y'all are at a coffee shop and you want to bust out. Hey, you got clearance. The Bible says, Bible says so, okay? It also says you can create new Christian music. That's what a spiritual song is. But it also means that when we sing here as a gathered church, it's a communal exercise. It's not actually a private moment. Uh, let me go off script a little bit. I think one of the reasons why we, we had, I mean we as in the, the big church, had a really hard time with this figuring out the COVID thing and valuing being in church together was that we have told people for decades, that your relationship with God is between you and God, 
And you can do that anywhere, and it doesn't matter whether you're online or at home or whether you're with people or not. And look, there's a little nugget of truth in that, all right? But we're supposed to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You got a car for that. You got a prayer closet at home for that, okay? This has extreme value. And I think we saw this year some places valued it, and some people made it expendable. And that's one reason why some of y'all are here today. Now, if you keep reading, uh, he does mention that worship and singing is to the Lord. Look at verse 19. He says, making melody and singing uh, to the Lord with your heart. It is true that we do sing to the Lord. He's the final audience. Okay, He is the final. Let me say that out loud. He is the final audience of our praise. However, there is something powerful about you seeing each other sing in church. Uh, don't, be weird, don't be a weirdo, but one of these days when you're singing, you know, maybe just pull one of these numbers, right? Just, it's good to see, because I get to see it. We're up here. I get to play my guitar and look out, and I see y'all singing. But if you don't look around every once in a while, again, don't be a weirdo, but, you know, just kind of it's good. It's good to see it because I get, I get encouraged from it because I get to see y'all singing and, and there's some power in that. You need to know that you're not alone in this world and that there's other people that are down with the cause. They're with you. They believe what you believe. You need to see them singing it. It's kind of like you need, to, you need to say out loud that you love your wife, right? You know, you can say, hey, I told you on the day I married you, you know, and that should cover it for eternity. No, I need to see it. We need, to see, we need to see that each other can praise God out loud with our mouths, okay? So, I used to be a worship leader. I guess I still am, uh, technically. But, uh, and I know I don't do everything right, and I know that it's uh, one of the hardest jobs in the world. I hope you all have grace on your worship leaders, because let me just tell you, one of the hardest jobs in the known world, um, aside from being an astronaut, is uh, blending congregational worship for a multi-generational congregation, Okay? Uh, that is a challenge, so I hope wherever church you are in or have been a part of or will be a part of, please, please be kind to that guy, all right? It's tough. But let me just say this. Let me just say this. You know what I think is missing from the modern church music scene? This I call the perfect storm. You want to know the perfect storm of not having your church sing during worship? I got it. I figured it out, all right? Here's the perfect storm of if you want a church where nobody sings. Number one, turn the volume up so loud that nobody can hear anything that's going on. You can't hear each other. You can't hear, what, you can't hear your own self talk or think. All right, that's number one. Number two, introduce new songs so frequently that people don't have a chance to learn them and then move on from them quickly once you've introduced them. That's number two. Number three, completely neglect the hymns that people love and like to sing. Okay, you do those three things, worship leader of the future, and no one will sing with you ever. You'll wonder why it's so dead quiet out here when you're singing. Now, I try my best. We try our best to do that because I think there is value. Actually, let's say supreme value. How, how should we judge the quality of worship? What is to judge the quality of worship? I'll say it's not the talent of the band. Quality of worship should be judged and whether you are engaged with God and we can hear each other singing. There, that's what quality... So people say, how was worship today? The answer in your mind shouldn't be, 
man, you know, when Jared got to that high note, his voice cracked, you know, <clears throat> you know, and then so worship was bad for me today because it was, you know, he, he flubbed the note. No. The answer is, did my heart connect and commune with God? And was I encouraged by the addressing of one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? That's what this is all about. That's how you should judge whether worship is good or not. I would love for Calvary Hills to be known as the church where you've got to go hear how loud that congregation sings. Wouldn't that be a good thing to be known for? I don't really care if our band is known as the best band in town. I'd like to be known for the fact that our church sings. And when we toss it to the crowd, you know, when, the, when we do the thing, when we cut, and you're supposed to sing back at me, it'd be really great if y'all just amped it up, you know, a notch or two, and kind of came along and just, re, you know, ah, you know, really get in there, all right? I need that. I need that from you. And more importantly, y'all need it from you guys. You need it from each other. Okay, way off. So the Spirit fills us. We sing praise. Verse 20 says there's another consequence of being filled with the Spirit is that there's going to be a disposition of gratitude and thanksgiving in your heart. Giving thanks to God the Father in the name of Jesus. A Spirit-filled person thanks God a lot. I'll say that again. A Spirit-filled person thanks God a lot. So if you're trying to do a little diagnostic test on your life of, am I Spirit-filled? How often do you thank God? That's a good indicator. It's not the only indicator, but this is a good one. There's a sense of gratitude that's supposed to accompany the Christian, a willingness to attribute things to Jesus and the goodness of God and his glory. In verse 21, we see that out of reverence for Jesus, there's going to be a willingness to, yes, to submit to God, but also to submit to one another, to say, hey, look, you know, your way is, is important. I'm going to yield to you once in a while. Now, look, you're going to hear Brother Ted preach about this next week, and, uh, and he's going to just t- knock it out of the park. You know, verse, the next verse is, you know, wives, submit to your husbands, and he's going to just do a great job. <laughs> in case you wondered how I plan my vacations. Uh, <clears throat> no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no, but that whole discussion of th- this verse 21 is the tee up for all of that. It's putting it on the tee. Submit to one another. Boom. Then he moves. Wives, husbands, uh, children. He moves down the list. So, we're kicking that off next week. Don't miss it. I want us to think on this third point, though, as we close. Does singing and praise and gratitude and submission define my life? Am I known for this? What's the opposite of this? Complaining and griping. Paul says it's a function of being spirit-filled. You can't fake it for long. You know what you can't do for very long is fake the fruits of the Spirit. You can get real excited and fake them for maybe a few months. I mean, you can just get juiced up and and just, man, you're on fire. But guess what? You can't fake it for years. Can't do it. If the Spirit has filled us, there's going to be some spillage, some overflow. And that's how it's supposed to be. That's when we address one another. So as we look back at this text, we see the admonition from Paul is to walk carefully, to walk wisely, to avoid foolish waste of life. This is done by living with a divine purpose, making use of the most limited of all resources, which is your time. It is done by letting the Spirit control your life, not alcohol, not anything else, but rather to live under the influence of the Spirit. And it's done by engaging your heart in praise and gratitude, glorifying God through Christ Jesus. And so as we live in days that Paul called then, and would still call now evil days. 
a time when foolishness abounds. There's no shortage of it. And many lives, yes, even Christian professing lives, are either wasted or lived under the influence of something other than Christ. We should know that is unwise and that is not the way. We are to live purposeful lives that are spirit-controlled. And so we leave with this challenge today to walk wisely, to make use of the limited time we have, to live in fact that Jesus is in charge, and to remember this truth. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Pray with me.